You're listening to Two for Tea, a podcast produced in association with Ario Magazine. I'm your host, Iona Italia. This is a podcast about politics, society, science, and art. I hope to provide a forum for calm, reasonable voices from across the political spectrum and counter the current atmosphere of frenzied partisanship and hysteria. The podcast is entirely listener-supported. For early access to episodes, support us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O, or patreon.com slash tea. Welcome to the conversation. Hello, everyone. You're listening to Two for Tea, and I'm your host, Iona Italia. And my guest today is Louise Perry. Louise Perry is a writer. She's a columnist of the New Statesman and a features writer at the Daily Mail. And she is a campaigner against male sexual violence. And I believe you're involved in the campaign, um, We Can't Consent to This. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Thank you. And um, we are both coming to you from London. And I'm, I'm going to talk today to Louise about her new book, The Case Against the Sexual Revolution, A New Guide to Sex in the 21st Century, which I think it is out now, right? It's out in the UK. It's not out in the States until um, beginning of September. Okay, great. I think this podcast will, by the time this podcast comes out, because we have a few podcasts queued up before this, the book will be out in both the uh, US and UK. Um, I would say that I I really enjoyed reading the book. You are just a very, uh, a beautifully clear writer. It's a very smooth re- and pleasurable reading experience. And um, that's kind of almost my highest ethical value, <laughs> that people write well. So, no matter how much I disagreed with you um, in the things that you said, I really, really appreciated the quality of the writing and the um, the clarity with which you argued, even when I thought the arguments didn't perhaps hold up. Um, and I did agree with large parts of it. I was nodding my head all through the chapter, Men and Women Are Different, mm-hmm. um, which is about... Um, bimodal average differences between the sexes and was also about the nature of rape. I think your views on rape are, um, they're still controversial in some quarters, but they really ought to be just the common sense stance. Mm. Um, But I think I disagreed with almost everything else (laughs) that you had to say. (laughs) One out of eight isn't too bad, I suppose. (laughs) (laughs) I think I, I guess that I am, there were some places in which you raised really thorny issues and I feel as though you were kind of guessing at an answer and I don't know the answer, but I think your guess is probably wrong. And there are other places in which I just more straightforwardly thought the argument didn't hold up for me. But you would expect that because I am a liberal feminist. <laughs> um, I think I'm going to really focus um, probably focus on places where we disagree. Um, mm-hmm. But there is so much that I'm going to just dive in somewhere and then the conversation might go in who knows what direction. Sure, go for it. So um, 
I'm going to just read a short passage first. And uh, this is from uh, the introduction, which is called Sex Must Be Taken Seriously. Um, and it's a section called Sexual Disenchantment. I'm going to argue in this book that Western sexual culture in the 21st century doesn't properly balance those interests. And the two interests are, um, how can we best, the two interests are the interests of men and women, uh, in bracket. This is my interjection. Um, given that they are, those two groups have intrinsically competing and different interests and um, uh, when it comes to sex. So I'm going to argue in this book that Western sexual culture in the 21st century doesn't properly balance those interests. Instead, it promotes the interests of the Hugh Hefners of the world at the expense of the Marilyn Monroes. And the influence of liberal feminism means that too many women don't recognize this truth, blithely accepting Hefner's claim that all of the downsides of the new sexual culture are just a small price to pay for sexual freedom, for personal freedom, which suits the likes of Hefner very nicely, since playboys like him have a lot to gain from the new sexual culture. It is in their interest to push a particularly radical idea about sex that has come out of the sexual revolution and has proved remarkably influential despite its harms. This is the idea that sex is nothing more than a leisure activity, invested with meaning only if its participants choose to give it meaning. Proponents of this idea argue that sex has no intrinsic specialness, that it is not innately different from any other kind of social interaction, and that it can therefore be commodified without any trouble. The sociologist Max Weber described the disenchantment of the natural world that resulted from the Enlightenment as the ascendance of rationality stripped away the sense of magic that this enchanted garden had once held for pre-modern people. In much the same way, sex has been disenchanted in the post-1960s West, leaving us with a society that ostensibly believes that sex means nothing. Sexual disenchantment is a natural consequence of the liberal privileging of freedom over all other values, because if you want to be utterly free, you have to take aim at any kind of social restrictions that limit you, particularly the belief that sex has some unique, intangible value, some specialness that is difficult to rationalize. From this belief in the specialness of sex comes a host of potentially unwelcome phenomena, including patriarchal religious systems. But when we attempt to disenchant sex, and so pretend that this particular act is neither uniquely wonderful nor uniquely violating, then there is another kind of cost. That cost falls disproportionately on women, for biological reasons that I'll come back to in the next chapter. And liberal feminists do seem to recognize this disproportionate impact, as demonstrated by the popularity of the Me Too movement, which began in earnest in 2017. This outpouring of rage and sorrow was evidence for sexual culture that wasn't working for women, the stories that came out of Me Too included plenty of unambiguously criminal behavior, but there were also a lot of women who described sexual encounters that were technically consensual, but nevertheless left them feeling terrible because they were being asked to treat as meaningless something that they felt to be meaningful. The boss who expects sexual favors as a condition of promotion 
or the date who expects a woman to put out when he pays for dinner, are both more than willing to accept the principle of sexual disenchantment and thus view sex as a meaningless product to be exchanged on a free market. You suck me off, I give you, a, I give you some good of equivalent value. I'm skipping a, a little bit here. It's just sex summarizes the sexual disenchantment idea perfectly. Um, and you describe a young woman who had sex about which she felt very uh, ambivalent. And you say, this young woman wasn't beaten. She didn't get pregnant. And she actually quite liked the young man she had sex with, at least at first. So why did she experience this sexual encounter as such a big deal? Because sexual disenchantment isn't actually true. And we all know it, including the liberal feminists who expend so much energy on arguing, for instance, that sex work is work. You can tell because when it became clear that Harvey Weinstein had been offering these women, uh, women, sorry, not the same women, career opportunities in exchange for sexual favors, these same liberal feminists instantly condemned him, not only for the violence and threats he had used in the course of committing his crimes, but also for requesting sexual favors from his subordinates in the first place. Um, okay, so there's a, an awful lot of really interesting stuff in there, and I think it highlights um, a number of things that you talk about in the book. I think I'd like to begin. Um, I think I'd like to begin first with the idea that, with a little bit of pushback against the idea that. Um, conservative culture um, protects women against um, sexual harassment and sexual violence because I think um, I think there are stats to prove this, although it's quite hard to get statistics because in many of these countries, um, sexual harassment and rape are not reported. But just kind of a, an, on an ordinary um, experiential level, there is a a strong inverse correlation between sexual harassment and rape and more conservative, especially religiously conservative societies. Theocracies and, dicta theocracies and dictatorships are some of the absolute worst places for sexual violence against women. Um, and I am, uh, you know, if you are a if you are beautiful 25-year-old, you are going to face a hell of a lot less harassment walking down the street in Copenhagen, and you're going to feel and actually be a lot safer from sexual violence than you are walking down the street in Delhi. So how do you, um, how, how do you answer that, that objection? Let's start there. I mean, I don't think I write at any point in the book, and nor do I think that, um, uh, that you know, radically conservative theocracies protect women's interests any better than the modern West does, um, nor that they are free from sexual violence or even that they reduce sexual violence at all. I mean, it, as you say, it's a very difficult thing to measure inherently. It's also a very difficult thing to measure if we're looking uh, transhistorically at the West or the UK, where I'm most familiar with the crime stats. Um, sexual violence is by its nature very difficult to measure. My guess would be that, that that's what's happened in the last um, generation or so has been that there has almost certainly been a drop in stranger sexual violence because of improved forensics and because most men who commit those kinds of offences are serial offenders. And so if you're able to catch them earlier on through more sophisticated policing methods, then 
they're less likely to reoffend, um, although they don't spend nearly enough time in prison. But then that's a, that's a, another question. Um, I think, though, that there is good evidence to suggest that what is sometimes called date rape has probably become more common um, for the reason that it has now become not only more socially acceptable, but actually almost socially obligatory for women to have sexual encounters with um, larger numbers of men and with men that they don't know very well, um, which is exactly the sort of circumstances where date rape is most likely to occur. And marital rape has probably remained the same um, because that's one of those kinds of, that's the kind of crime that's really hard, sadly, to prevent. Um, it's it, uh, All of which is to say that it's a complicated picture. You are right that, and I've I personally experienced this, that you get a lot more sexual harassment um, outside of the West generally on the street. Um, that's not true across the board. I mean, I don't know if anyone's ever quantified this. I personally, I personally, for instance, haven't experienced street sexual harassment in East Asia, uh, whereas I have in South Asia and North Africa. Um, right. Yeah. And more in Southern Europe than in Northern Europe and then less. And so I, I don't, so I, so I'm not sure if it's possible to draw a really simple kind of linear graph between, um, conservatism and street sexual harassment even if we could kind of easily put cultures on a linear conservative to liberal graph um which is quite challenging i mean if you're thinking about somewhere like japan for instance where where street sexual harassment is very unusual mm. um that's a much more conservative culture than ours in lots of ways has much less female labor force participation for instance um doesn't have i think legalized same-sex marriage um, even if same, even if same-sex relationships aren't criminalised, so I, I I I do take your point, and I and I you know would very much hope that the book would you know, isn't read by anyone as a de- as a defence of um, you know Saudi Arabia and style. Oh, oh sure, no, it's it's definitely not. But um, uh, because of your focus on um, liberalism, uh, there is a, a sense in which you are arguing that some aspects of liberalism have endangered women. And I just want to um, point out just how much, um, how endangered women are in theocratic cultures, because I do think re- religion is one of the differences between um, what's happening in Japan and what's happening in India. Mm-hmm. Um, and theocratic cultures do see sex as very special, um, but basically very special for women. Mm. Um, so the kind of the burden of being chased is placed upon women, but not on men. So I don't, I think that that kind of double standard um, really doesn't protect women against harassment and rape and sexual violence. It just means that women who have had sex outside marriage or before marriage or, um, or even uh, you know, in the in the worst cultures, women who've been um, who've been assaulted or raped are stigmatized, ostracized, punished. Mm. So um, that is kind of, for me, the absolute worst of worst of all worlds. Um, yes, I think I write it at um, I can't remember where or at some point in the book about about the sexual double standard and. and so whereby women are punished for promiscuity and men aren't. Um, and I think I write that it is so common as to be probably a human universal um, and, that it rem- and that it remains um, it remains prevalent in the West. 
but is much less openly um, discussed and and people are much less likely to um, you know volunteer the idea that the sexual double standard is is true or should be true but there have been some interesting studies done um, trying to sort of dig down into how people actually feel and it, it seems particularly that men um, do continue to believe in the sexual double standard and do continue to stigmatize women who they see as being too promiscuous while of course also potentially having sex with women who they consider you know there's there is this um there is this double standard that men seem to hold to pretty much the world over where they are quite happy to have casual sex with women who they view as promiscuous and and not treat those women with the respect that they deserve and also um at place have very high expectations of the sexual behavior of their wives or potential wives so that you know the madonna whore complex is by no means unique to christian cultures yeah it's to be found yeah. the world over in lots of different forms and i think is still at play even in a post-christian west yeah i would i'm just arguing i guess more with um with your extrapolation of Max Weber's idea. I disagree with Max Weber's idea about the Enlightenment, but that's a whole another topic. <laughs> um, but I think that um, the sacralization of sex doesn't actually protect women at all. And on the contrary, you know, the Catholic Church was one of the biggest abusers um, of women and children. Uh, you know, in India, for example, um, gurus and... Um, Imams and Hindu gurus and priests of all kinds are just, they are overrepresented among sexual abusers and rapists. Uh, and, you know, because, because, um, you have, uh, in those positions, you're in a position of power and trust. Mm. And therefore, if you're a sociopath in that position, you just have more opportunities. And of course, it's only a minority of people, even even if we're talking about um, priests and, and things, um, we are talking about a minority, just a minority that is too large. But the kind of the sacralization, I don't think that that on a societal level really helps at all. I think that's not where the problem is. I think that that is the motivating reasoning behind um, the calls for sexual disenchantment, because I think people observe, you know, correctly, that societies that, that view sex as sacred, which is most societies but our own, um, treat women terribly in all sorts of ways. And as you say, um, men in positions of power and particularly religious institutions often abuse their power and often are uh, terrible hypocrites on sexual ethics. Um, I mean, it's worth pointing out that men in positions of power across all kinds of institutions tend to do that. It might be, I think it's probably partly to do, as you say, with opportunity, the fact that they can use their power to gain access to victims. I think it's probably also to do with the types of personalities that are attracted to those roles and probably more likely to have dark triad traits among the men who are attracted to those roles. I mean, I'm just thinking of Westminster where I think there isn't a clear overrepresentation of sex. Ooh, yeah. For yeah. instance, despite it not having any kind of um, religious structure at all. Yes, yes, um, absolutely. So, but I, but I mean, if people correctly observe that this idea of sex being sacred is often used against women, and I think therefore conclude that the that the solution is desacralization, 
And the argument that I make is that I don't think that does actually improve anything because if you, if you, if you really want to argue that sex doesn't have any particular status that makes it unique compared with other kinds of social interaction, if you really want to say that it could, it, it, it can just be a sort of neutral form of work or, or social interaction. I think downstream from that are some very damaging ideas, particularly for women. I mean, if you can't say, for instance, that sex is uniquely bad, is, well, unique in any way, you can't say that rape is uniquely bad. You can't say that sexual harassment is uniquely bad. And we do recognize in law, you know, we, our legal system recognizes rape as being much worse than theft. And it recognizes sexual harassment as being worse than other types of harassment because people, the victims of those crimes, experience it that way. There's this deep emotional response to sex which isn't found in response to other, to other, to other crimes or other kinds of social interaction. And I think that the the problem that you you find if you try and hold a sexual disenchantment. I mean, I say later on in the book that. If there's any group of people that seems to actually believe in sexual disenchantment, truly, it's sex buyers. You know, they do genuinely seem to have what I would argue is a often really psychopathic idea of sex and, and often view other people as just, um, in normally women, as just orifices to be used and to be bought and sold. And, and I, I think if we, if you follow that idea, right, sort of down to the bitter end and you really want to claim that sex has no special status and should be completely desacralized. I think you end up with the logic of the punter triumphant and it becomes very difficult for women to sort of protect sexual boundaries in the way that they instinctively want to. Let me start with where I agree, which is that um, I, I do think that it's, I mean, I think that if punters are dehumanizing um, prostitutes by, for example, uh, seeing them as simply um sex to be to be bought, sex seeing them as simply pussy. I mean there's a way in which sex workers are also dehumanizing their clients, whom they see as just an ATM. Or maybe not sex workers who are often constrained to do this by economic circumstances, etc. But or addiction or whatever. But um in a kind of uh, you know a go- the typical gold digger who is going after a wealthy older man is could also be seen the way as dehumanizing him. There's a lovely line in Lady Windermere's Fan where um, uh, uh, in in that play, which everybody should see if you haven't already, uh, Oscar Wilde's play, uh, there's this older man who wants to marry a woman of quote-unquote loose virtue uh, from that period. And his friends say to him, don't you know that she only wants you for your money? And he said that she wouldn't, don't you realize she only wants you for money? She wouldn't love you if you were poor. And he says, well, of course not. I wouldn't love her if she were ugly. Um, so there is a sense in which, uh, you know, people often do objectify each other. Um, that's okay as long as that's, they're not reducing their interactions with other people to making them means, uh, you know, means to an end. Um, but it can be an element even in a sort of more healthy, more well-rounded relationship. Um, but I think the, uh, the, other, the, the other thing is that um, I tend to agree with you about the kind of special nature of sex 
And I th- my theory is that there is probably a deep-seated, evolved desire, mm-hmm. um, which maybe not all women share, but most women share, which is a wish to choose um, who you allow to fertilize your eggs. I mean, we have the larger gametes. Right. Eggs are expensive. Sperm is cheap. So we need to be choosy mm-hmm. um, about who, who we allow to get at those resources. Um, and rape absolutely violates that. And I think that that might be part of the reason why people find it very traumatizing to have been raped, even if they were uh, drugged. Um, and were semi-conscious or unconscious during the rape. Uh, so there was no, no, no actual kind of, there was no experience of the rape itself. But nevertheless, the knowledge of having been raped is deeply traumatic. And I think that that might be, those might be linked, but this is just spitballing on my part. Um, I, I think that there's, um, I think there's, there's, there's good um, work from evolutionary biologists to suggest that is true. Um, that I mean, one of the differences between men and women on average, for instance, is that women have a much lower disgust threshold for sex, um, which means that women are much more reluctant to be sexually intimate with, um, like, most men, the vast majority of men. (laughs) (laughs) And feel a kind of quite a visceral response to it. I mean, and, and of course, I think this is one of the reasons, among many, why prostitution is so... Um, traumatizing, you know, it's partly that that, that prostitution women ex- are particularly likely to experience uh, physical violence and have all sorts of um, you know risk factors in relation to their health and very very um, high murder rates. All sorts of you know, there's all sorts of stuff which makes it um, a, a bad and dangerous job. But I think that when it comes down to it, the core thing that women are obliged to do in prostitution is to not choose their partner or to have very little choice over their partners. And given the, as you say, that kind of deep urge that I would say, I would say all women really, I mean, you, you do occasionally come across women who seem to have no sexual disgust threshold almost, um, and seem to be, um, really not fine, you know, having sex with random men, um, kind of, that it doesn't hit them emotionally. I think that almost always though, those women have some sort of traumatic history, which explains an abnormal response. Um, in the vast majority of cases, women de- women have a really deep-seated desire to, to choose who they have sex with, basically. And when that is overridden by circumstances, experience it as really upsetting. The um, Rachel Moran, who's a, a sex trade survivor, whose book I quote in mine, um, her book is called Paid For, she says at one point that one of the, one of the most important um, skills in someone who's um, selling sex, a woman in particular, is the ability not to cry or vomit um, in response to sexual disgust. And I think that that that's very revealing, right? I think that really kind of gets to the heart of what's going on here, where women tend to have a very, very strong instinct to protect their sexual boundaries. And that's an instinct that often gets overridden by, by physical force and coercion by men. I would be reluctant to um, universalize this because I just I, I'm just not inside the heads of of every woman. So um, I and there does seem to be a wide range 
in general, in behaviors, preferences, views, feelings about things, um, just getting away from the topic of sex, but there's almost nothing deeply intimate and emotional uh, which which is universalizable. Um, everything exists out there. So I'm willing to believe that there are a, a minority of women who are quite happy doing prostitution. And I think that... Um, one way in which I would push back a little bit against the way that the book depicts societal tendencies is that aren't Gen Z having a lot less sex than previous generations? Wasn't there a survey recently and um, half of all Gen Zers said they hadn't had sex this year, within the past year, um, that even though that generation are the most kind of concerned with describing and defining and labeling and discussing their sexuality, um, they also seem to be just having just having less sex. Um, and also prostitution has um, one thing that's happened is OnlyFans has come along. And in some ways that's surely been a good thing because some women who would otherwise be on the streets doing prostitution are doing webcamming. And that is clear, obviously a lot safer and less traumatic. Um, but um, but I think if anybody listening to this is tempted to do OnlyFans, please go and listen to my interview with Isla, who is one of the most successful OnlyFans performer. And just be aware of, just listen to her talk about how much the average OnlyFans performer makes and the median OnlyFans performer, how rare it is to make good money on OnlyFans, extremely rare. And also what an impact it will have on your employment prospects going forward for the rest of your life. She's very frank about all of that. So uh, if you're listening to this and you think, oh, I have nice tits and I don't, you know, the economy is in a terrible shape and I don't know what to do. Please think carefully before you do OnlyFans, just even for economic reasons. I just wanted to interject that. But I think, um, what do you think about this? How do, How does this affect things, the kind of, the move, do you think that there is a move among Gen Z away from this culture of promiscuity? Um, the so-called sex recession. Mm, I mean, I, yeah. yeah, I don't think that, um, I actually don't think that these two things are mutually exclusive. So I think that what seems to be happening with um, the sex recession is it is primarily a result of the fact that people are getting married later or not at all. Um, and whatever kind of you know, comic greeting cards um, for anniversaries might suggest married people have more sex than unmarried people. So I think what's going on with, um, I mean, the, this this large group of, of of Gen Z who are remaining virgins into their twenties or even thirties uh, tend to be men, right? They tend to be the kind of um, the men at the less sexually attractive ends of the spectrum who are struggling to attract partners, whereas more most attractive men are attracting many more, um, you end up with this kind of clustering effect among men. And among women, I mean, I mean, just anecdotally, as well as looking at the survey data, what I find very um, interesting and dismaying is the extent to which young people are, yes, having sex less often compared to previous generations. But when they are having sex, it's much more likely to be casual sex. So it's, uh, it's, it's sex that is both less frequent and more casual simultaneously um so i don't think there is a contradiction there i think it's just a uh people b being much less likely to have these really 
long-lasting stable sexual relationships at the, at, the, at that age than they once were um the other thing which i think is at play here which i describe in the book as a cultural death grip syndrome death grip syndrome is a pseudo medical term used to describe uh usually men who uh become impotent as a result of excessive porn use um partly you know partly physical to do with the um uh, aggressive styles of masturbation and partly psychological because they're just so they become so used to the um hyper real sexual stimulation of porn that they can't get aroused with a real person um and i write about cultural death grip syndrome as a sort of cultural manifestation of this where on the one hand we have a hypersexualized public life with a huge amount of sex on tv or on uh uh, you know, nudity and posters on the streetscape and um, the amazingly wide availability of uh, porn. But then on the other hand, as you say, we have people actually having less sex and having less satisfying sex as well. Um, and I think that those, I think that those two things are linked. I think that that kind of, <sighs> that, that excess of st- sexual stimulation in the public realm potentially has the effect of limiting it in the private realm. And I think particularly when we're thinking about some of these young men who are not having sexual relationships at all until much later in life or, you know, ever, porn for them is partly providing solace, you know, so that they can, they can, they can expend their sexual energy on porn rather than with a real person. But also I think is is part of the problem in the sense that one, you get the death grip syndrome consequence of of, of using so much porn that you actually become um, incapable of having real sexual relationships. Um, but also because porn is a disincentive to actually go out and meet a real person and take all of the risks and difficulty inherent to real relationships with other human beings. So I think that I think, yeah. In conclusion, I mean, I, I I agree with you about the 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 sexual session, but I don't think that that disproves my thesis. Um, I think I, I mean later on in the book, I I think that I understand what you're saying here, but I think actually that um, there is certainly a way in which the normalization of um, of sex and sexuality in the woman's body and the kind of um, the proliferation of sexualized images um, actually often creates a, a safer culture for women. So, uh, you know, in um, your if you're walking down, I, I'm, I apologize to my Indian friends for keep for using these examples, but that's um, that's the area that I know best. But uh, you know, as my my uh, cousin. Um, told me when he's, you know, when the guys in Bombay see somebody with whose breasts are a bit more obvious in her sari blouse, they're all staring like, like you know, mesmerized. And um, when he's working in Singapore, women come onto the uh, tube in a mini skirt and high, and high heels with bare legs and uh, none of the guys even glance up from their cell phones. 
um, on which they're not watching porn on the on the actual public transport, but just working and texting and stuff like that. And that kind of being unused to having seen that kind of material um, and therefore being really fixated on actual women who look sexy, I don't think that that is necessarily a very reassuring or healthy thing for women. And I also think that this, later in the book, you argue that um, that there's a link between violent porn, watching violent porn and becoming sexually violent, which, which I would sort of push back against because it sounds very similar to the, um, the arguments that people make that there's a link between what, uh, playing violent video games and becoming violent. I think there's a link the other way around. If you are already have violent urges, then you will seek out violent porn and violent video games. But I don't think there's been proven to be this kind of link between violence in fiction, uh, which porn is obviously a form of fiction, and uh, in real life. And I also think that the kind of deadening impact of exposure might help keep the public sphere less less dangerous for women. And yet it's not, most people do uh, just do feel there's a huge difference between looking at a poster and having actual sex with another human being. Um, sorry, I don't know if that was a bit muddled that point, but... <laughs> Um, so, so two things in there. So the first on this point about violent porn, I mean, so I agree that the, um, this was, this was the, the great fear of second wave feminists. Porn would encourage higher rates of sexual violence. And I think it, I think it's not quite as straightforward as that. Um, and it's an inherently difficult thing to draw any firm conclusions about as well, because we're dealing with, you know, messy human phenomena. And all we can really look at in practice is, is correlations. But one of the things that I write about in the book, which I think does suggest that there has been uh, a change in the culture triggered by porn, is strangulation, um, which has become astonishingly prevalent in otherwise consensual sex um, between young people. I mean, if you look at the, there's a poll I quote in the book, which shows that the difference between women in their 40s and women in their early 20s in terms of the proportion of them who report having been um, choked or slapped or spat on by partners during sex is huge. And in some of those cases, it's consensual and women are asking for it. But in a lot of cases, it's not consensual and women are experiencing this kind of aggressive style of, of sex is really upsetting. And of course, I mean, the other point as well being that strangulation is... A much riskier act than most people seem to realise, um, in that it can cause all sorts of injuries. Not not lethal injuries. I think I think you don't I don't I don't think anyone has ever accidentally strangled to death. But there are all sorts of accidental injuries that can result which are really bad news. So I don't think that there is a way of explaining that trend across age groups except by pointing out the fact that the porn industry now puts images of choking on the front page of most of the major platforms, right? It has gone from being a niche within a niche within the BDSM communities, you know, in say the 1990s to being, to being considered a normal part of sex. Yeah. And I heard anecdotally from young women who say that that's how they felt about it. You know, they, they would, they would see choking images, not even necessarily on porn, you know, on Instagram or whatever. It's, it's all over um, non-pornographic areas of social media as well. 
and hear about it in women's magazines or whatever has been a just a just a sign of being sexually adventurous, you know, not not an indication of um aggression or danger or anything, but just as a sort of a way of being up for it, you know, because I think that this is what's happened in, in that women, young women in particular, used to be under pressure and are still in other parts of the world to be uh, very chaste and to project an image of themselves as being very kind of sexually contained. And now that's flipped. And a lot of young women say that actually they, they feel the opposite pressure to be, to be up for it and to be, to imitate a kind of masculine style of sexuality, which is very um, casual and adventurous and so on. Um, And choking is a part of this. And women will say that they just they just thought it was normal. They thought it was basically compulsory, with all of the you know resultant distress further down the line. And I think that is an area where you can't help but look at porn, you know. And I, and the the comparison I draw sometimes is with advertising. You know, think of the amount of money that that corporations pour into advertising um, to try and get us to to buy their products. If watching advertising didn't have an impact on our spending behavior why would they pour so much money into it you know is, is it really possible that porn is the only area of life where we are not influenced by what we see i mean particularly given that porn is also reinforced with with orgasm right so it has like an extra layer of um dopamine feedback loops even compared to other types of types of entertainment um so i think that even if i don't want to have a sort of I don't want to have a completely uncomplicated view of the link between porn and sexual violence because I think it is complicated. And I think that there are, you know, some men, for instance, who um, are maybe less likely to have sex because they are watching so much porn and that would include potentially sexual sexual, uh, violence acts. I think that there are other very strong indications that porn is having an effect on the sexual culture and that the effect of it is towards more aggressive and more loveless styles of sex which i think is is bad news for everyone but i think particularly bad news for women um there's quite a lot of things i could say um to question some uh some of the assumptions there but i'm i'm not going to because um i'm i'm um aware that we are t- your time is uh um is precious and i would like to get on to a question which i think lies at the heart of the book and is um actually and is very really fascinating um and as usual i disagree with the way that you resolve it but i think it's a really interesting question that you've raised an extremely um in a complex way in a complex and interesting way as well and that is um the question of uh, as you put it in the, the chapter is actually titled some desires are bad um, I think that's a wonderful, bold and, and correct title. Some desires are bad. Um, and you talk about, let me see, I'll just quote a little bit. Um, you say that liberal ideology flatters us by telling us that our desires are good and that we can find meaning in satisfying them, whatever the cost. But the lie of this flattery should be obvious to anyone who has ever realized after the fact that they were wrong to desire something and hurt themselves or hurt other people in pursuing it. And the desire of the wrong desires that you particularly focus on are those of the women who choose um, to be submissive partners in BDSM 
And yeah, I mean, actually, in that sentence, I think I'm talking about. Oh, um, yeah, not in that sentence. Sorry, I meant more generally in the book. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, in the chapter, some desires are bad. I, um, that chapter is mostly about paedophilia. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sorry, where is the bit about BDM? Maybe it's There's a chapter on. later on uh, called. Um, Consent is not enough. Violence is not love. Mm, ah, okay. Yes, sorry. Uh, it is a topic that comes up a number of times um, during the book. Mm. The, the, the really thorny moral issue of why it is that some women deliberately seek out, why they agree to and even seek out relationships in which they are sexual relationships, um, in which they are submissive partners in BDSM. Mm-hmm. why um, Fifty Shades of Grey and books like that were so popular with women. Mm-hmm. Um, I think reading, uh, enjoying Fifty Shades of Grey doesn't necessarily, doesn't necessarily mean that you enjoy, uh, you want to be a BDSM submissive, but there must be some overlap there. Mm-hmm. Why um, women, um, you know, there are definitely women who want to and who ask to be um, beaten and strangled and tied up and things. Uh, even when their boyfriends or partners don't don't want to do it, um, they are the ones driving that in the relationship. And I have several friends who are like this. Um, mm-hmm. I can vouch for this in my personal life. And um, I think that it's. I agree with you that it's very um, it's very morally troubling to me. I don't fully understand what is going on there, and I am disturbed by it i mean obviously also somebody who is non-consensually strangling someone else to me that's just attempted murder (laughs) i think that person should be locked away but more uh more kind of mysterious to me is the woman who wants and desires to be strangled or who asks to be strangled and i do think that um it's a misunderstanding of liberalism to say that it's about portraying all desires as good and thinking that you, if you have a desire, you must and should act upon it as long as it doesn't harm anyone else. Um, it's more a question of who chooses which desires are good. It's freedom has to, has to include the freedom to make mistakes and to want and to choose bad things. Um, again, assuming the only person harmed is yourself, because um, there is no, there is, I may be wrong about what will make me happiest, but I have no good reason to think that, um, say, Boris Johnson will be, will be more correct in his assessment of what would make me happy, and that therefore I should allow him to legislate what I'm permitted to do um, in the bedroom, for example. So I think it's not, it's not about um valorizing all desires it's about autonomy it's about what mill called experiments in living each person has to be free to do their own experiments which may well the, they may well go wrong they may well want the wrong things they may well lead to bad outcomes but that's because humans are fallible and we do err all the time but uh it's there is no better alternative than letting each morally capable and intellectually capable adult decide for herself rather than 
imposing, um, making that choice for them because the person making the choice is equally likely to err and they're not even directly affected. I'd be interested to know if you'd apply that to self-harm because the, the, the way that I see it with, with, you know, getting away from strangulation because maybe it's a bit difficult because of the, you know, the, the, um, the harms of strangulation are so potentially severe and little understood. Something like whipping, you know, I think a woman who whips herself, particularly, I mean, I think we, we, there are some circumstances we can understand that within a religious context. A woman who whips herself because she is sexually aroused by it or is, um, somehow emotionally drawn to it in a really compulsive way. I think whether we see that very differently from a woman who asks her partner to whip her. And I find that interesting. I think, or I might apply it to, uh, you know, anorexia, let's say. For all of the, um, um, the, the rhetoric that we hear around BDSM and freedom, we, we much, much more rarely hear around something like eating disorders or self-harm or other, other, mm. other ways in which people can damage their bodies. And, you know, they're not hurting anyone else by doing so, right? Like it has exactly the same justification in that sense. I mean, what I'm arguing for here is, is to say that people do not make any of these choices within a vacuum, even if sometimes they're, I mean, I argue in, in one of the chapters that um, there are some evolutionary explanations for what's going on with the BDSM dynamic, the fact that women are much, much more likely to be drawn to the sub role and men to the dom role. Um, probably does come down to some quite deep-seated um, gender differences. But I'm thinking about the culture of it, you know, a culture that valorizes female sexual submission. is what it, it is, That's what my complaint is with, because I think that actually, you know, particularly when it comes to young women, and I, you know, I, I, can, I can attest to this personally, having once been a teenage girl, um, we are amazingly impressionable, amazingly so. And I think what I, I, I get a bit frustrated by in some of the um, critiques of my book, you know, some of which I can, some of which I can, of course, but a style of critique that I find um, frustrating is the "I'm all right" style of critique, where people say, "Well, um, I love it when my, you know, partner beats me up, whatever it is in sex. Who are you to tell me I'm wrong about it, et cetera, et cetera?" And I say, "Okay, fine. You know, if I, I, I might be a little bit skeptical about your mental health, I might think that actually, is this really coming from?" A healthy psychological place and a healthy relationship dynamic but you know okay you are an adult you you insist that you're okay but then i think that you know the week on consent of this campaign which we mentioned briefly at the top the focus of our campaign is we document um cases where women have been killed and the men who've killed them have claimed that they consented to violence as part of rough sex and have used this successfully as a defense um and the reason that we started the campaign is because many more defendants were using this style of defence and they were using it with much greater success and so often getting away with just manslaughter charges or very short sentences, um, even though actually from the outside, you know, it could have been a BDSM relationship that she consented to. It could also have just been straightforward domestic violence. You know, from the outside, it looks exactly the same. And then when the woman is dead and she isn't able to speak for herself in court, um, how is the legal system supposed to tell the difference? And I think that's a really, really good example of the fact that all of this stuff is networked. You know, if, if, if your only unit of analysis is the individual and her freedom or his freedom, then you might um, feel, you know, intensely relaxed about people making bad decisions on a personal level that only have 
um, bad effects on themselves. But the problem is that no no one's decision making really remains confined to that individual level because we all, you know, sex is relational inherently. We have sex with someone else. Um, you know, if for instance you are a woman who likes to be strangled and you ask your partner, you otherwise um, your neutral partner to do it you are to some extent reinforcing in him a pattern of arousal which he's more likely to um play out with other partners in the future you know that there are there are all sorts of ways in which people are linked to each other in this way and these these linkages on mass form a culture which then feed back and you know influence, further influence individual behavior so i think that the I mean, it's, it's, it, this is kind of a, the, the, the larger argument in the book, which in many ways is a, is a critique of liberal feminism, is that, is that the liberal analysis just can't really deal with that problem. It can't deal with the networked effect because, it, because it's only a means of analysis and thinking about individual choice. And I think that that is, you know, not, not invalid, but I don't think it's enough to really understand what's going on. Okay, thank you so much, Louise. Is there anything that I haven't asked you that you were hoping I would ask or something that you have wanted to say that I haven't given you a chance to say? Uh, no, I don't think, I think we covered a lot of ground. <laughs> Great, there's there's a ton more stuff in the book. Um, it's, you know, quite a, a book that's quite dense with ideas. And um, I actually, it, it, um, it raises many questions that I've been thinking about ever since, mostly to mostly to kind of consolidate and try to um, uh, justify my disagreements um, with it. But that is also a very useful thing to get out of book. I enjoyed reading it. I would recommend it highly. And you've been a wonderful guest, Louise. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Yana. Have a wonderful week, everyone. You have been listening to Two for Tea, a podcast hosted by me, Iona Italia, and produced in association with Ario Magazine, with the assistance of sound engineer Justin Ward. Show notes are provided by Daniel Sharp. If you enjoyed this episode, share it widely, leave a review on your favorite podcast app, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash ario, A-R-E-O or patreon.com slash 2 for tea. Have a wonderful week.